0: This is the Lost Art of Communication, hosted by Molly and Tricia. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Lost Art of Communication podcast. Today's guest is Gregory Toole, a conflict transformation coach. We are so excited to speak with Gregory about all of his insight on communication and conflict transformation. So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you, uh, Tricia and Molly. Um, I mean, it's a joy to be here.
0: So let's start with you giving us a little background on yourself. What's your story? How did you get involved with this sort of work?
1: Ah, uh, yes. Uh, kind of just fell into it, really. I uh, was wasn't any on, on any list of career objective or uh, anything I ever really thought I would be doing, except I, it just seemed wherever I was, whether it was in a corporate space or an entrepreneurial space or working with nonprofits, uh, I was always being called in to, to, to help people with their relationships, to help people with their communication, to help people when they were having a difficulty with another person. I just seemed to always get called in. And then I worked with a particular organization that was about spiritual growth and development. And I was at their headquarters. It was a global organization with uh, uh, centers all around the world. And I did not have it specifically in my job title to do conflict transformation, but somehow I was drawn to it and no one was fighting me for those projects. <laughs> when it came up, it was like, oh, that these people are having tremendous conflict and they're ready to tear each other apart. And I was like, oh, well, I'll go in there and I'll, I'll help them. I'll work with them. And no one else was saying, no, I want to do it. <laughs> Most people wanted to run the other way. And somehow I was really drawn to that kind of work. Um, and so I just started doing that. I just started going out uh, and, and working with groups of people who were in conflict with each other and found that it, it was something I was comfortable with, you know, in quotes, comfortable. I mean, it's it's not. You know, it's definitely something that gets my blood flowing as well and and gets me energized as well. And it's not easy to hold all of that space. But relative to most people, it was an area for me that was very comfortable. It was an area that I was in my zone. (laughs) You know, I knew what to do. It wasn't lost. You know, it wasn't like, oh, no, these people are ready to tear each other apart. I better get out of here. It was like, okay, like I know what to do here. I know how to handle this. And so I just started doing more and more of that. And when I left that organization, um, I still wasn't you know, setting a direction that, oh, I'm going to work in conflict transformation. Uh, but then maybe my reputation preceded me. <laughs> and I started getting people calling me like, oh, this group is really having difficulty. Would you be willing to go work with them? And so it just kind of became something like, oh, I'm really good at this. And most people aren't. <laughs> so that's that's kind of how I got into this work.
2: How do you think you, do you think you were like born with the skill of being comfortable, quote unquote, in these conflict situations? Because like you were saying, a lot of people are not comfortable in that, like running away from conflict versus wanting to, you know, make a career out of it. So was there anything in you? your previous experiences that caused you to feel comfortable with this?
1: I think my personality and my my general uh, um, natural talent, if you will, is in this direction. But I would say there's much more of what I've learned uh, through doing this work that is what makes it really effective. So I had a natural predisposition to it. Uh, but I, you probably, I was like a hack (laughs) at the beginning. I was more like a hack. I mean, I could get the job done, but it wasn't necessarily pretty. Whereas I would say the, the, the vast amount of what I'm able to do now is because I started studying it and, and learning and, and really focusing on it. And that's where it really came in. So that kind of comes to like, can you, can people learn this or, or do you have to just have a natural knack for it? And I would say most of it. Is learned.
0: <laughs> so when you were going into these situations and helping people with their conflicts, were you primarily acting as the mediator and sort of advocating for both sides? Or can you walk us through just out of yeah. curiosity, because conflict transformation isn't a term we hear all the time. So what is something like that even look like?
1: Yes, and that's a great question. I love that question. Because I specifically tell people I am not a mediator. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I tell them I tell them I would be a terrible mediator. <laughs> you know, don't even call on me for that. I wouldn't be very good at it because I see mediation as like where, you know, and I've, I've observed this where one group is in one room and the other group's in the other room and the mediator goes in between and carries notes back and forth and says, okay, well, they'd be willing to do X, Y, Z with you, you know, and... I would not, that would not be a, a skill or talent or even something I would desire uh, to do. So uh, what I do is I come, I see myself, if, if anything, more like a peacemaker. Uh, that would be like the more generic term for conflict. What I see myself doing is, is, is helping them make peace. And the biggest part of what I do, which actually sounds really simple on the surface, but the biggest part of what I do is get people to listen to each other. Most of the time in conflict, the people have never even heard each other. Like literally, they don't even know what the other party really wants. They've made up a story about the other group or person. And and that story is what's running. And so a big part of my job is to say, take a breath, (laughs) take a pause. And for, you know, whatever it might be, there might be one exercise where we say for 10 minutes, you're just going to listen to this other person. And then you're going to repeat back to them what you heard. And it's amazing, uh, even sitting there with them sometimes, they still haven't heard the first time around. Eventually they do, but the first time around, they still haven't heard. So the story is still operating. And so I get to, I get to do it in real time where I say, okay, what I heard this person say was this. Is that, is that true, what, you were, what you're really wanting to convey? And a person says, yes, that's what I'm really trying to say. And then, the, and then I say, so do you hear... That this person is really saying this. Do you hear that? That they want the same thing as you, for example, uh, but they want to do it a different way. Do you hear that? Do you hear that you both have that in common? You both want this thing, but they have a different opinion as to how you get it done. And then they like hear that, and it's like it's like a it's like a sigh, it's like a a release. Like, oh,
2: (laughs) I was going to call like the magic moment. Like when the other person feels heard, there's this, yeah, sigh of relief. I feel like that's one of the most disarming parts of those conversations because then it's like, okay, now we can get the work done. So I love that. And I love the idea of you brought up this story in our heads. That's a theme that I've been thinking about for about a year now. I heard it first from Brene Brown, like the stories Mm -hmm. we tell ourselves. Yeah. And that really resonated with me because we live in our brain, right? And we tell ourselves all these stories, but what's going on in the other person's brain and conflict and communication is all about two or more people. So it's not just your own brain.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, another part of this really is one of the first things I tell any group when I go in, which kind of shocks them a little bit and surprises them, but it also Puts them a little bit at ease that, that someone who, you know, kind of has some experience in this is telling them it is, is I say, nothing has gone wrong. Like they're in the midst of thinking everything has gone wrong and the world is falling apart. And I come in and I say, nothing has gone wrong. And that comes back to the definition of conflict transformation, um, which is different from conflict resolution because conflict resolution is, is more like the mediator thing, which is like, okay, how do we compromise? How do we resolve this issue? How do we get you all to agree? Um, and conflict transformation includes some of that, but conflict transformation goes beyond that because it, it it's really about the relationship. So conflict transformation, it, now conflict becomes a positive thing because it's about it's like, okay, this is, call, this is calling for some sort of change. Something's not working here now. And a lot of times it's like things have been working for a while, right? It's groups, they've been working together just fine for a while and then they hit the snag. And it's like, okay, nothing has gone wrong, but something's calling for change. And it's like, oh, it, like, it sort of like reframes the whole thing, as opposed to like, we got this huge problem, it becomes, how is this calling us to shift, or grow, or learn, or develop the relationship? So, it, so conflict becomes a positive, because with conflict transformation, not only have you resolved the issue, but the, the relationship has actually become better. And the relationship has actually become stronger. So then it's like, well, how can you look at conflict as a bad thing if it's really just calling the relationship to expand and to grow and and you're going to be much better when it's all done?
0: I think that's so huge, just reframing the perspective from conflict being this scary bad thing that a lot of people try to avoid to saying, no, this is a positive. This is something that's going to bring us closer together and help us strengthen our relationship in the long run, which is easy to say at an intellectual level, but I feel like it's very difficult in the moment, if you're disagreeing with someone and you have these negative emotions and you're having negative thoughts about this person that you care about, it's really hard to rationalize to ourselves that, oh no, this is a good thing. So do you have any tips for how to remedy that? And when we're heated in the moment or the emotions are getting the best of us, do you have any tips for helping people stay mindful and present and the fact that this is not necessarily a bad thing.
1: Yeah, and, and this work requires self-awareness, and it also requires not only self-awareness, but a commitment to self-awareness. So if one isn't committed to self-awareness and one is not committed to their own growth, like they just want to stay where they are, like I want to keep my opinion, I want to keep my worldview, I, I don't want to change, I don't want to see any expanded view, then it would be very hard to do conflict transformation. That person is not ready for that level. Um, but most people, uh, you know, amazingly are ready. <laughs> you know, most people, because most people most people want to be free from their limiting beliefs and their limiting ways of looking at things that, that hold them down. Uh, and it can be scary, but at the same time uh, with a little bit of just, you know, supporting people, it, it's not really so scary. So the self-awareness is um, for one, getting in touch with our feelings and our emotions. And, you know, that's kind of like, for so many settings, that's like a taboo, almost subject, you know, it's like, it's like, it's scary. It's like, you know, I don't know, you know, you know, like anger, anger is a great example. What do we do with anger? Right? First of all, you're not supposed to have it. (laughs) So if you're not supposed to even have it, then then how are you going to do anything with it? And so uh, to make something like anger as an emotion and as a feeling be okay, that kind of also like frees us a little bit. It's like, oh, like I went into a setting with a client and it was the first meeting. I wasn't even supposed to be doing the work yet. This was just to get to know you, talk about what I'm going to do and then leave, you know, like, okay, we all understand what we're going to do. And then next month we'll start the project. And the project started on its own right there because one person said, well, I'm really angry. And everyone sort of froze because apparently this person had been show, shown their anger before and everyone sort of froze. And I, you know, being one who's comfortable with that emotion of anger, I don't, and not thinking there's anything wrong with that emotion of anger said, it's okay. If you're angry, you're, you're allowed to be angry, <laughs> you know? So tell me more, like, like what, what's, what's the source of your anger? What are you, what's causing you to be angry? Well, I don't like this and I don't like that. And I don't like this. Oh, Okay. Okay. And so, and and just sort of hearing him, listening, going back and forth a little bit more, listening, listening, you know, the anger started to diffuse. And there were several more meetings where he came back and said, I am really angry. But after about three times, the anger part was done because all of these emotions just need a release and an outlet. So if we realize that, that it's natural to have emotion, whether it be anger, sadness, joy, um, you know, whatever emotion we might have when we when we befriend our emotions and recognize our emotions are our friends, it's not something wrong. and now it become now we can have awareness, self-awareness, and be conscious and we can share about our emotions consciously as opposed to from a reactive place. So most of the bad reputation of anger has nothing to do with the emotion of anger. It has to do with all the ways that we've dysfunctionally <laughs> expressed anger because we're not supposed to have it. So because we're not supposed to have it, we keep pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down. So when it finally does come out, it just comes out as yelling or finger pointing or things like that. And we say, oh, anger is a bad thing. No, it's not the anger that's a bad thing. It's how what we do with it. that's really not so cool.
2: That's like a light bulb moment for me, like thinking about how anger in general, like, if you, yeah, if you repress it, it just is like a volcano, it gets bigger. And I think I've heard that before, just the visualization that you just gave us really clicked for me. And that's super helpful. Um, but thinking about you going into specifically workplaces and doing this conflict transformation and you pairing the word emotion with it just doesn't fit in my brain, because I feel like we're always told like, you check your emotion at the door when you walk into the workplace. Like, I feel like I've become a very different person now once I turn my computer on in the workplace, like we're all telework. But yeah. typically when I walk into the office, I'm a completely different, like professional, you know, like my emotions typically I check them at the door. So would you suggest that's not the way to do it? Like, what would you suggest for, I guess, employees and um, employers with emotion at work?
1: Wow, that's, <laughs> that is such a rich subject. There's so many ways I'm, my mind was firing off in all different directions of where to go with that. Um, the first thing I think is, is in the corporate sector, you know, the idea that we can't have emotions is one of the most dehumanizing um, things. Uh, and it really needs. we really need to find a healthy way because uh, what really becomes healthy is when we can be who we are wherever we are. You know, if I have to compartmentalize and become something different than I am, how how is that my most productive, most expressive, most creative self when I have to shut down? You know, a big part of who I am. We're we're emotional beings. We have emotions, <laughs> so there's no need to to check them at the door. And when we befriend our emotions, and when we really uh, get in touch with our emotions, and we allow them to be okay, they don't become reactive. And so. Uh, someone could say, Wow, when you just said such and such, I felt myself feel a lot of anger. And here's why. And the, the key is like, you, you probably are familiar with nonviolent communication from Marshall Rosenberg uh, as a practice and as a teaching. It's a very simple uh, teaching, much harder to put in practice. <laughs> but I love it because the model is actually really simple. And um, in that model, you know, when you say, I feel angry, the, the key thing is what comes after that. So when you say, I feel angry because, and most of the time we say, I feel angry because, and the next word after that is because you, <laughs> I feel angry because you did this. And then that goes down a whole different path, right? Because the other person becomes defensive. Well, no, I didn't do, you know, whereas in healthy communication and in the nonviolent communication model, what comes after the word I feel angry because the phrase I feel angry because is the word I. <laughs> I feel angry because I have a need or I feel angry because I really want this or I feel angry because I have this value that, that I don't feel is, is being met. For one, it's more honest. It's more true. That's what's really happening. It's not really about the other person. It's about some need or want in us. that's not being met. And then the other thing is that it doesn't put the other person on the defensive. So it starts to open up the possibility for for a dialogue. So these emotions, if we befriend them and learn what to do with them in a really healthy way, even anger is not going to be a big deal. Or uh, to express, you know, uh, I'm feeling a little bit sad, like this project is getting canceled. You know, oh, I'm, I'm feeling some sadness right now about this project getting canceled. I really Enjoyed this project, I was really hoping it was gonna continue going on. Uh, so it starts to build a closeness between coworkers that allows for so much more. There's more trust, there's more collaboration. Uh, so it's a much healthier uh, work environment. And, and you know, there's a whole set of companies you know called B Corps that are really beginning to come about that, that think of not that, that business is not just about profit, that business should be about the common good of all and and contributing to society in addition to making money, you know, and then there's another organization called Conscious Capitalism. And in that organization, all these companies meet to talk about how can we create more conscious companies? You know, how can we have companies that that aren't just, like you said, I got to check who I am really. (laughs) You said check my emotions at the door, but it's kind of like I got to check who I am at the door you know and there was an example of one company i went to a meeting with with uh, conscious uh, capitalism and there was a, a story about one company that took the uh, uh when you get your performance appraisal and that part that says your areas for development they integrated that with with people's personalized and i thought that is so cool right they they uh, when you did your performance appraisal, let's say you had to work on communication, like you need to work on your communication skills, it'd be like, oh, well, probably you need to work on your communication skills and your relationship at home as well, <laughs> and in your relationship with friends. So let's just have this be about you as a whole person, as opposed to you as this one little sliver of your life. And that's just one example of how companies can start to, to think uh, that it's not just all about profit, and it's not just all about uh productivity, although these things lead to more profit and these things lead to more productivity, because if I go to, a co- to work at a company where I really enjoy being there and I really enjoy my relationships with my colleagues and we really love being together and working together, that can only lead to good things.
0: Yeah. And I think company culture is such a huge component and something that's getting more and more attention these days of what's the culture of the company. Do we enjoy being there? And it's easy to to look at places like Google, for example. It's like, oh, you get free meals and you get all this stuff. But at its core, I really agree with everything that you've just said. It's about feeling accepted. It's about feeling like you belong and being understood as a human being rather than just A name or a number and all the perks and benefits are great, but if you don't feel validated for who you are, there's always going to be some deeper issue there that's going to prevent you from being as productive or as happy as you could be in that role.
1: Yeah, yeah. At the beginning of my career, I worked in Silicon Valley for a company called Sun Microsystems. And they were like the hot company at that time. They were literally doubling in size every year. And, and I mean, going from like a billion dollar company to 2 billion to 4 billion, all this was happening while I was there. And so in one way, it was a very difficult company to work for because of their level of growth. It was chaotic and, and it, it, there was some difficulties. But on another level, uh, it was one of the greatest experiences in a company I've ever had. And then I discovered recently through Facebook that I'm not the only one because this company no longer is a standalone company. It's now part of Oracle but there's a Facebook page for Sun Microsystems like former employees. And it's amazing how much people rave about that company being their best experience they had in their whole career. And I I thought, wow. And one of the things on the very first day, well, not the first day, but in my orientation there, the CEO came in, Scott McNeely, and he said, uh, I want you to be having fun here. And if you're not having fun, you tell your boss that I said you're supposed to be having fun. And I thought, wow, that is really cool. Well, seven months in, I wasn't having fun. So I didn't even remember back to what that CEO had said because I just thought, yeah, right, whatever. (laughs) That's just like a nice line from the CEO. But I just wasn't having fun. And I just went to my boss and was like, this is not working for me. And literally within two weeks, I was in a different job that was much more aligned to what I was doing. And I was like, this is really part of the culture here. <laughs> like you really are supposed to be enjoying your work. You really are supposed to be having fun.
0: So I'm curious, cause I was expecting that to go a different direction when you said they doubled in size while you were there. I expected to hear as they grew, I became less important to the company. I became more of a number and not a person. So mm-hmm. I'm curious What did they do other than telling you to have fun, which I think is great and amazing and every company should have that motto, but did they do anything to make sure that even as the company grew and expanded and there were now billions more people, how did they make you still feel needed and important?
1: I think that culture just permeated everything. And so um, there was a a woman who I had as a manager there who was just really good (laughs) You know, she just did all the right things. Um, and, and so um, I think the whole culture, you know, was a culture of creativity. And, and it was a, like an informal culture. Like it wasn't this really formal culture and where, you know, appearances matter and you got to do the right. You know, you're going to get on someone's wrong side. It, it, was, it was a more healthy culture. It was, it was about uh, creating, you know, greatness, like creating great products is what it was about. And so, you know, you were playing your part in that. And the, the, the challenging part was just um, how quickly things were changing. That was the most challenging part. But the, the culture stayed the same, you know, and it was just a very honest culture. Uh, you know, on some levels, it would be difficult because people would tell you exactly what they were thinking. <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't like someone's going to tell you one thing and then there's really something else. Someone might tell you very directly You know, I don't like that, you know, or whatever. Um, So, you know, not being used to that probably for a lot of us could be difficult, right? Because it's like you're used to people couching things a certain way and, and, you know, a lot of formalities. But this was a very informal culture that was just about creating. And so I think that's why people had so much fun there is because you could be so creative and create new things and you could decide like I did this isn't working for me in seven months later or, or, or after seven months at the company and then be in another job two weeks later, you know, and be doing something totally different. Um, so I think it was, I think it was a lot of about how it permeated the whole culture so that even as it grew, that culture remained intact. And, and I don't know, I mean, I, I left after they moved out of that phase of rapid growth. So I don't know what happened except that this Facebook page suggests to me that they continued with that because people just it, it was amazing people just rave about their experience there
2: i have a question so i know when you weren't happy in your position you were able you had this amazing culture where you were able to say hey like i want to change and they validated that for a lot of other people as employees of a company I don't know if it's true or not, but they feel like they don't have that opportunity to go forth and say, Hey, like I'm not happy. I know in the past I've been in situations where I'm just like, I'm going to quietly be unhappy and then quit. (laughs) And then, you know, I can even tell myself that like before there probably were opportunities where I could have talked to my employer and maybe thought of a solution. Um, But my interpretation of the situation was, I got to get out. I'm not happy. I'm not going to tell anybody because there's nothing that can be done. And I'll figure out my own stuff on my own. What do you suggest for those situations?
1: It's a great question. And, um, you know, those are cultures that that create lose lose situations because everyone loses in that situation. Like you lose because you have to leave a job that you probably would have liked to have worked out. And then the company loses because they lose your talent and your skills and what you were contributing. What I love about becoming empowered with conscious communication tools is it doesn't matter if the the people around us don't have them. The fact that we have them changes everything. We can even bring the other people in without them even having to have the skills just because of how we start to talk to them, right? So like, for example, if let's just say... Uh, we're around people who don't have this level of awareness and let's say that the way that they express their anger is they start yelling at you and pointing finger at you and blaming you you can use the same conscious communication tools with that person you can say it sounds like you're really angry right now and you can help them get in touch with what's really going on in them they you can help them see that it's not really about you it, you know if you can you know develop this This awareness enough where you don't have to take it personally, because if you once you really know that it's really not about you, like when someone else is pointing that finger and they're putting their projecting their emotions onto you or projecting something onto you. Once we really know that it's not about us, then we can relax a little bit and not make it about us. Right. And so then you could go to that employer or boss or whatever and be able to say, you know, hey, here's what's going on with me. And here's what I would like, you know, and and have the conversation from that place of owning what's going on with us, but then also helping them, you know, see what it is that they're needing or wanting in that moment as well. So it it benefits us on both sides of the relationship, even if the other people um, don't have the skill, because we start to bring that and maybe even we start modeling that and maybe we, in some small or maybe even big way, we start to change the organization. So I've always felt, I don't know why, or maybe I'm just a eternally positive person, but I've always felt that any organization I go into, the organization is different the moment I go in. And I think that's really true about all of us. It's—it's Because you're there, just just even factually, we can see that that's true, right? Because before you weren't there, now you are there. So now your energy is there. Now your perspective is there. Your ideas are there. So the company and the organization is totally different. So we really can impact organizations and companies in a much greater way than we think as long as we start to feel like I'm empowered as opposed to I'm disempowered. And titles mean a lot less than people give credence to. You know, People think like, well, I'm just at this level and the other people are at that level. But really empowerment comes from a personal inner feeling. Do I feel empowered in the situation? And therefore, there's many leaders and organizations that have no title, but but they, they're empowered and they have the ability to cast a vision. They have ability to influence the direction of how things go. So our shifting can really have a great impact on everyone around us, especially if we start to feel really empowered and we start to feel a strong sense of our own self and our ability to navigate situations.
0: I absolutely love what you said about the organization is different the moment you enter it and that is true for every single person because every person affects the room and the company or the group of friends if it's a social situation in some way and so just recognizing that you do matter when it's very easy for someone who feels like a just A name or just a face or just a number in this larger organization is like, oh, my title doesn't matter. It's really healthy and important to do what you're saying of remembering that I actually do matter. And I really love the way that you express that and remind just as a reminder to everyone that even if you're not the boss, you can still influence the way that that conversation goes. And it doesn't have to be like Molly was saying of well, nothing's going to change. There's nothing I can do about it. It's like, actually, there's a lot you can do about it. And so I love that framework. So thank you for bringing that up.
1: Yes. Yes. And oftentimes uh, we never ask the question. We never ask for what we want. So we have no idea if we could have gotten what we want because we never asked. And uh, quite often when I work with individuals, uh, people are so focused on what they don't want, you know, like this isn't working for me. I don't like this, that when I ask them, so what do you want? They don't know the answer right away to that. Like, because in a lot of cases, it's kind of like an idea that we can't have what we want, like in a situation like that, right? Like this, this is wrong and this, and I don't like it. And the idea that we could actually have it be what we want it to be can almost seem foreign, you know? And so it's like, Oh, what if I entertain the idea that it would be possible for me to get exactly what I want, you know, and to actually go ask for that, to actually go and say, this is what I would really like. I've been amazed in my life at times. In fact, I laugh at myself when I look back now at times of things I've done. I'm like, I'm like, who, who were you? Who did you think you were that you could ask for that? You know, and there were things that I ended up getting, you know, like even this example I gave you. When I look back at that, I laugh at that because the, the my current manager uh, when I told him, he wanted to keep me in his department. So he said, oh, well, I've got this and I've got this. And I'm like, no, I don't. None of that works for me. You know, I want something more like this. And I really needed the job at the time. I had just moved to California from the East Coast. I didn't know anyone. I had no network. I mean, I was hanging out there, but there was something in me that just said, I've got to advocate for myself. And uh, I laugh when I look back at that. I'm like, what the heck were you thinking that you could just turn down all these positions? What if he would have said, okay, well, that's it, you know? Um, but I've been amazed though at, you know, standing in uh, self-advocacy and, and, and that confidence that I can be heard and that, you know, I will be heard and that, that I want the best for the other person as well. I've been amazed at, at how often um, I have gotten what I wanted. Maybe not everything I wanted, but I have gotten some of what I wanted in most cases when i have asked.
0: Yeah, and you really don't know until you ask, but you bring up such an important point that's so easy to forget, especially when we're in the midst of conflict or we're stuck in the rut or we're not getting the thing we want, which is to be crystal clear on what it is that you do want. Even if you're talking with a friend and saying you're annoying me right now, it's like, well, what do you want from me? And just going into that conversation or in the work environment, if you're doing a salary negotiation, knowing before the conversation what you're willing to accept and what you're not. But so often I think we just get stuck in this vague sense of this isn't working, fix it for me. And then the leader has, or the boss has a million other things things to think about so if you come into the conversation with a proposed solution I found in personal experience it goes a lot better and you usually do get what you want so it just goes back to what you're saying ask for it but know what you're asking for
1: yeah that's a that's a great point and and uh quite often the spoils go to the one who can be really clear (laughs) right like like if no one else has an idea of where things should go and you come in with a really clear plan like like, I have an idea. Here's exactly what we could do. It's like, well, no one else has come up with a solution. So it kind of goes that way. Right. Yeah.
2: yeah. And doing the work to figure out exactly what you do want. Like Trisha said, like that's all that internal work. And I think that's, we always come back to that. And it's so important to recognize self-awareness, doing the self-work, figuring it out is how you get ultimately, like you said, to where you want to go. Um, Man, my head is like spiraling right now (laughs) thinking about all of this. Um, So this has been insanely helpful for me. Um, We always like to end our episodes with one final takeaway for our listeners. So with everything being said, all of your expertise, what is one final tangible thing our listeners could do after this episode?
1: Hmm. That's a great question. (laughs) Let's see what comes to mind. Um, I guess what immediately comes to mind is um, to reframe. There was one of my favorite bumper stickers used to be, don't believe everything you think. Um, And so to, to kind of reframe how we're looking at ourselves, how we're looking at the world, the company we're in, the situation we're in. Uh, To reframe that and reassess that and and really do an inventory of what's really true and what's, you know, things I just made up. And the most important part is the things about ourselves. Right. The things we say, well, I'm only good at this. I'm not good at this. I'll never have this. I'll always be like this. All those kinds of things. It's like everything is at this time, things that I've done in my life. And that I'm doing now, I never would have thought that I'd be able to do because it's about growth and development. So, you know, we don't know what's possible as we grow and develop. So we're, you know, just really taking an inventory of where am I limiting myself? Where am I um, thinking of myself in a way that causes my communication and causes my relationships and causes the way I operate in the world uh, to be colored by all of that as opposed to what's really real. So um, the last thing I would say is, is you know, for, for, you I know, ask the question, do you, you know, um, do you know what your possibilities are? Do you know what's possible for you? And it's a trick question because the answer as I see it is no one can possibly know that. We don't know what's possible for us. We just keep on going forward and growing and learning and, and we find out. <laughs> what's possible for us.
0: I love that. That's a beautiful way to end the episode and something that we can all start thinking about is what is possible for us. And I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us today. For more information about what you do and all of this great work, where can our listeners find you?
1: Uh, The best place to find me is at gregorytool.com.
0: Right, and we will include a link to that in our show notes. So thank you very much for being here, and thanks everyone for
2: listening. Thank you so much, Gregory. It was a blast having you on.
1: Oh, it was a lot of fun. It went so quickly. I'm ready to do more hours. I think
2: we'll have to go to your website. Check it out.